0: Hi, Dave Ermer here. This is For the Record, program number 1284. Interview number 21 with Jim DiAjamio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January 13th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jim DiAjamio, author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, and also selected by Oliver Stone to do the screenplay. For JFK, we visited the two-hour documentary and the expanded four-hour JFK Destiny Betrayed. He has also, Jim has authored the book uh, by the title JFK, Visited, which has transcripts of both two and four hour uh, documentaries and also supplemental information. Jim, welcome back once again to our airwaves.
1: Nice to be here, Dave.
0: Uh, Jim, I wanted to kick around a few aspects of uh Jack Ruby and uh his going, his doings, his goings on, the goings on around him that were not in the uh, documentary. Uh, in 2018, there were, I wanted to get, get your expansion on this. In 2018, there was a release of some of the documents that the government had previously withheld. And in one of them, Jack Ruby tells an um, FBI asks an FBI informant if he wants to go down to Dealey Plaza to see the fireworks, which may have meant that he knew that Kennedy was going to be killed. But there has been some discussion, Jim, of a fake assassination attempt on JFK that was meant to be pinned on uh, pro castro Cubans in order to drive his policy toward Cuba to the right, and that some of the participants may have thought they were going to be uh, engaged in you know, that sort of a shadow play. Uh, if you would share with us your thoughts on that.
1: First of all, the document you're talking about, I read through the whole Packet on that, and I believe the information in it is accurate. Okay, I think it's uh, true. All right, now of course you can argue about what on earth Ruby meant by that. You know, uh, what did he mean by that? There's going to be fireworks down there. You know, did he mean that somehow there was going to be a shooting? Uh, did he mean that there were going to be a lot of people there, all right, and somebody might be shooting off some fireworks? You know, we, of course, never got to ask him those rather important questions, you know, which is a problem we have in this case, all right? Now, as far as there has been some talk about this being somehow a fake assassination attempt, And pinning it on the anti-Castro Cubans who were going to actually try and say that they did it for Castro, all right, uh, this was supposed to provoke an invasion of Cuba, all right? Now, what happened here, though, is this that once Johnson got the information from the CIA about Oswald being there in Cuba, the Cuban consulate and the Russian consulate in Mexico City, he decided to put on the brakes, all right, that the last thing in the world he wanted to do was to provoke a confrontation with Cuba or their ally Russia, alright, in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. Now let me get into a little bit, a little bit of complexity about this. Johnson even had one of his ally, one of his aide de camps, I think, Clifton, okay, call the Dallas police and tell them not to say anything about this being a communist conspiracy. All right. That's how desperate they were to stamp this out. All right. And so this is what he uses, Johnson uses to get people like Richard Russell and Earl Warren to serve on the commission. And reportedly he did such a good job with Warren that he left the White House weeping. You know, he actually pulled out these documents that McNamara had gotten for him saying there could be 30 to 40 million people dead in two hours. Okay. If this thing gets out of control, if we don't take it out of the arena, okay, of the Cubans and the Russians consorting with Oswald. See, but here's the problem with this. J. Edgar Hoover, within 24 hours, had information saying that his his agents in Dallas had been talking to Oswald, all right, for hours on end. They had listened to the tape that the CIA had sent up, okay, from Mexico City, That's supposed to be Oswald. And they tell Hoover, look, whoever the guy is on this tape, he's not the guy we're talking to. This is not Oswald. And then, of course, I'm sure you're aware of this, Dave. The CIA also sent a photograph up to Washington that Hoover could see. And this, they said, was supposed to be Oswald, except it wasn't Oswald. All right, it was a, a guy that looked like a husky six-footer. He should be playing football at some Ivy League school or something, and he had a balding, receding hairline. Obviously, not Oswald. All right. So the question then, and Hoover told Johnson about this. So the question then becomes: Did Johnson believe this information, or was he just using it? to defuse any kind of conflagration that could have led to a a mutual assured destruction. Mad, okay. That he, you know, so nobody knows this for sure. Did, Did Johnson know this or didn't he know it? Was he sure about it or wasn't he sure? This is one of these tantalizing mysteries, you know, that will haunt this case probably forever. All right.
0: Um there are a couple of other things about Ruby. Uh, very quickly, he, as I recall, uh, visited the offices of Lamar Hunt, part of the extreme right-wing, uh, Texas oil family, the Hunt family, uh, right around the time of the assassination. I believe it was either a day or two before. Uh, can you develop that for us?
1: Yeah, that was his, one of his friends. Okay. Was applying for a job there. And so Ruby took her for a ride. Okay. To go down to the, uh, to the hunt offices. That's what that was.
0: All right. There was also, I've forgotten the woman's name off the top of my head, but, uh, she saw. A driver in the vicinity of Obdily Plaza, and then saw someone put in what appeared to be a rifle there, and then subsequently, after Ruby Shaw Oswald recognized Ruby from... that's, the, from
1: that's the, julianne mercer that's Julia Ann Mercer, and she is prominently figured in oliver stone's nineteen ninety one film j f k okay in fact she's one of the most powerful witnesses in Uh, the whole film, and she actually, and, you know, Oliver gets, he gets smeared, you know, as making all this, you know, he didn't make anything up about Julianne Mercer. Julianne Mercer said all this stuff to Garrison, okay? And you're right, she thought she saw him carrying something that looked like a rifle case in the vicinity of Dealey Plaza the morning of the assassination, all right? So, yes, that is accurate. And if that is accurate, if, in other words, if the guy really was Ruby, then that is pretty good evidence that Ruby knew that fireworks were going to be uh actually high-powered rifles, okay, going off in Dealey Plaza that day.
0: About uh, no, a couple of statements that uh, Ruby made, one of which – was included in the original movie JFK by uh, Oliver Stone in 1991. And that is when interviewed by the Warren Commission, among the many provocative statements he made was, quote, a whole new form of government is going to take over this country, and I know I won't live to see you another time. (laughs) I wonder if you would expand on that for us.
1: That's He actually did say that. Yeah. OK. He actually did say that. And and really nobody knows what he meant by this. This is one. See, Ruby made about four tantalizing statements. All right. While he was in detention, that his lawyers probably wish he wouldn't have said. All right. One of them we show in the film about the reporters asking him, you know, did somebody put you in the situation you're in and he says yes and he goes are these people in high places and he goes yes are they there now and he goes yes okay that's also so, so these kinds of things and the thing you mentioned about a whole new form of government that well that actually did happen of course all right you know so you know th- this is really you know people who have studied ruby you know think that he was willing to go up to a certain line. All right. But he was not going to cross that line as long as he was alive. All right. And, and had a chance to, uh, you know, acquit himself. Cause at the time of his, his death, he was not guilty of killing Oswald because the appeal had succeeded. And he was going to go ahead and have a new trial. The grounds on which the appeal succeeded was that when uh, when Melvin Belli moved to try and get a change in venue because he did not think his client could get a fair trial in Dallas, the judge overruled that motion, and the appeals court said they shouldn't have done that. Ruby should have had a trial outside of Dallas because there was no way he was going to get a fair trial within the confines of the city. And that succeeded on appeal. One of the lawyers that Melvin Belli had was there to find all the ways that they could find an appeal in case they lost the case. And this guy stayed with the case. He got the appeals. And I believe that trial was going to begin in like a month and a half. Before, you know, then Ruby died. And so they didn't get, it would have been a very interesting second trial, to say the least.
0: Ruby died of cancer, and he opined that when he had gotten a shot in jail, that he had actually had the cancer injected into him. And I'm Uh,
1: pretty sure he thought that.
0: But, but certainly what he said, and, and we know now from the decades of Freedom of, of Information Act disclosures, that uh, the CIA, among other intelligence services, did have a way of giving, have multiple ways of giving people cancers. Uh, but there, there is a uh, statement in JFK Revisited that Ruby makes on camera where he said that uh, certain people uh who, I, I can't remember if but uh, who... Uh maneuvered me into this decision we'll see to it that the truth never comes out about why I did what I did uh, very, uh yeah. see thoughtful. that's
1: one of those really unbelievable tantalizing kind of statements and we and let me add something else that I think your listeners should know because very few people know about this, and I don't even think you know about it The House Select Committee did some very spotty work. But every once in a while, they did something well. They appointed a panel of three polygraph experts to review both the test that Ruby took and the records that were left over from doing that test. All right? They all agreed that Ruby's test was worthless because the examination broke anywhere from 10 to 12 established protocols in giving a valid polygraph examination. For example, there were too many people in the room. There were too many interruptions going on, okay, uh, the examination took too long. It was four hours long. There were too many questions, something like 50. All right. And the most egregious one of all is that they had turned down, um, one of the prime tests machines that tests whether or not a person is blushing, okay, while, because it it records the blood surfacing to your skin, okay. They said that machine was only started at 25% power, and then it was turned down as the test went on. They said that was completely irresponsible and unprofessional, all right, and they found that Ruby lied during the test by what they, their review of the exam, all right, so now I don't have to tell you who arranged a test, the FBI arranged a test, J. Edgar Hoover arranged a test, all right, and you're not going to tell me some polygraph operator is going to rig a test like that in the crime of the century and not know that somebody is going to be doing some CYA, okay, in case he gets caught. So that's one of the very important things that the House Select Committee found out about, that Ruby lied during his polygraph test and the FBI covered up for him.
0: Another uh, an interesting thing. I've spoken about this before, but when they were commission interviewed Ruby in Dallas on June 7th of 1964. And not just Earl Warren, but there were also uh, Leon Jaworski, who was a Warren Commission counsel, also working for the Texas Court of Inquiry. The Texas body uh, formed to look into the assassination. Uh, Elmer Moore, uh, the Secret Service agent who was pressuring... Um, Forgotten Malcolm Perry uh, about the testimony concerning mm-hmm. the throat wound. Uh, Arlen Specter, old magic bullet Arlen was there. And uh uh Gerald Ford was there too. Uh Vice President, for President Gerald Ford. And uh at one point Ruby uh despairs that uh, he thinks they've been told he was part of a plot. And then Ford says, and this is the Babin. By that, do you mean the plot of Oswald? And then Ruby says, under oath to the Warren Commission members assembled there, I'm trying to tell you that I'm part of a plot to silence Oswald, unquote. Uh, My interpretation of that, Jim, is that he was trying to tell them that he was part of a plot to silence Oswald. I mean, it, it, it could not be. More plain and more plainly spoken. Other aspects of Ruby's testimony are much more oblique and garbled than that. But uh, it, it is, I think, one of the aspects of this very important uh, and and sadly eclipsed individual that we just don't hear about. But the, the pivot no, that
1: That's actually very interesting, Dave. And I, if you do me a favor, please send it to me because somehow I missed that.
0: I've I, I recorded it in a number of programs. Uh, it is in a partial transcript of Ruby's interview with the Warren Commission in the book *The Yankee and Cowboy War* by Carl Oglesby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will get that to you. Uh, I certainly have it in audio. I don't think I have my copy of *Yankee and Cowboy War* uh, readily accessible. If you have the book, it's it's in that book. That's no, I don't for- have the book. Okay, uh, I will get you then, uh, one of the, the audio of my reading of that, because when I read that, it just, it, it sent me through the roof. I okay, I should... good. Thank you. I, I will get that to you. And, and, and it's been aired a number of different times, uh, in the, uh, on the airways. <laughs> I'm in about my 44th year now. So, uh, that's, that's quite a few years, but I will get that to you. It is, um, It's just remarkable. Um, Again, the source of the Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. I think I read that from the soft cover Signet paperback edition, but uh, that is the source. It's not an easy one to find right now. But uh, in any event, uh, Ruby obviously was seriously mobbed up. Ian J. F. revisited. Uh, there is, uh, a, some, a, a clip of, of Richard Schleicher, uh, part of the Church Committee, talking about, now when will be working as an FBI informant, but the, all of his mob connections, Robert Kennedy Jr. is talking about that. And so I thought we might go into some of the, for lack of a better term, deep political connections surrounding the mob and the CIA mob attempts at Killing Castro. Two of the people cited in JFK Revisited are William King Harvey of the CIA and uh, Johnny Razzelli of the Mob, being uh, two of the people involved. One of the things that helped to, well, really, there were two of them, that helped to fix my attention on the JFK assassination. I remember very distinctly, Jim, in the 1970s uh, when the Church Committee hearings were going on, and I've forgotten whether it was just before or just after, perhaps you can uh refresh my memory, but Johnny Roselli was going to testify before the church committee about the uh CA blobs to Go Castro, and his dismembered body was found floating in the fifty-five gallon drum in Biscayne Bay. And then later, Sam Giancana, Sam Momo Giancana, whom you mentioned in our last interview, was also involved with the CIN mob plots. He was found shot to death and that was while his home was allegedly under, uh, FBI surveillance. Uh,
1: you, you, you got the order wrong. It was Giancana was killed first. All right. Okay. And that was during the church committee hearings. All right. Then it was Rosselli. That was at the beginning of the House Select Committee on assassinations. And okay. you're right, you're right. Roselli's body was dismembered in a oil barrel, okay, off the coast of Florida. Giancana, however this happened, I'll never know because you're correct. He was supposed to be under surveillance by a car outside, right across the street. But... Somebody who he obviously knew got into his house. All right. And as he was preparing, uh, some Italian delicacy, all right. I don't recall exactly what it was. All right. The guy snuck up on him and shot him. And if you recall, it was mob style with something like seven bullets around his mouth. Okay. All right, that was supposed to be a clear signal, I believe, to Rosselli. All right, you know, if you try talking, you're going to get it also. All right, and Gary Hart, if you remember, Gary Hart and Schweiker, Richard Schweiker from Pennsylvania, Gary Hart from Colorado, had formed a subcommittee of the church committee. The church committee, of course, was it's become legendary, you know, as the only the only true investigation of the crimes of the CIA and the FBI in the United States. And it was it was so sensational that it was literally on TV every night for a few months. All right. And then the House Select Committee, excuse me, the the House of Representatives did their own uh, inquiry at the same time, all right? Their report couldn't even be published in the United States, all right? They Somebody leaked it out to the Village Voice, and the Village Voice printed the whole thing in one issue. Then it was published in England. But Gary Hart and Schweiker formed a subcommittee of the Church Committee that was allowed to investigate the quality of information that the FBI and the CIA and the Secret Service were giving to the commission. Gary Hart always said that, look, if the House Select Committee was not even going to investigate who and why and how Giancana and Roselli were both murdered, how were they going to find out who killed Kennedy? which is a very good question, okay? Uh, another thing that Gary Hart was investigating was who was Q.J. Wynn and W.I. Rogue? If you recall, those were two killers hired by William Harvey that were used in the assassinations of Lumumba and the attempted assassination of, of Castro, all right? And the House Select Committee never got to the bottom of that either, who were these two guys, you know? And Rose, you mentioned Roselli and Harvey. That's very important in a relationship because, as we said in the film, once the CIA mafia plots were uncovered, all right, and once uh Hoover and the CIA briefed Bobby Kennedy on what the heck was happening, all right, what they were doing, et cetera, The CIA told Robert Kennedy that they had been discontinued. They were not doing this stuff anymore. In the CIA Inspector General report that was declassified by the ARB, I believe in 1995, it says right in their report that as the CIA said this to Robert Kennedy, the plots were ongoing between Roselli and Harvey. They were still trying to kill Castro. All right. So they knew that this was a lie as they told Bobby Kennedy it was a lie. All right. And in fact, in the report, I believe on page 132, 133, it says right there that the, they never had any presidential approval for those plots from either Eisenhower, from Kennedy, or from Johnson. These plots continued until 1965 uh, with what they called the Amlash plot, the Amlash plot, where the CIA stopped working with the mob. They now worked on a, with a Cuban national who knew Castro to try and get him to kill Castro. All right, And those were not approved either.
0: Um uh, there is only a tiny bit of discussion in JFK we visited about the assassination of Robert Kennedy. There is quite a bit of uh footage of Robert Kennedy Jr. talking about various aspects of his uncle's and father's uh activities. Uh but the assassination of Robert Kennedy is, is interesting. Well, there, there's a, a whole other scenario to explore, but Robert Kennedy was a major gadfly of the mob. And I am, um, am I remembering his name correctly? Grant Cooper was Saran Saran's primary attorney. Yes. And he was also representing Johnny Rizzelli at the yes. same time, which is your basic garden variety concept of interest. I wonder if you would develop that for us uh, again.
1: Well, Robert Kennedy, of course, never bought into the official story about what happened to his brother. And we have that very well explicated in David Talbot's book, Brothers. All right. From the first day on, He just never believed that one person killed JFK. And in fact, one week later, on November the 29th, he and Jacqueline Kennedy were at Hickory Hill, Bobby Kennedy's home. And William Walton, who was a cultural ambassador to Russia and was about to leave on a mission, came in and... They gave him a letter that they wanted forwarded to Moscow that although everybody's blaming this Lee Harvey Oswald guy, you know, for killing John F. Kennedy, we know that this is much bigger than that. We also know it's not a foreign plot, it's a domestic plot, all right, and that Johnson will not be able to advance my brother's agenda for taunt with you because you're too beholden to big business. But I will resign my position. I will then run for office. I will then run for the presidency. And we'll be able to continue our search for detente at that time. Well, of course, that didn't happen because on the night that it looked like Bobby Kennedy was actually going to be going ahead and taking the convention to Chicago, and running and very likely defeating Richard Nixon, you know, all that was turned upside down. There were two things that happened with the Robert Kennedy assassination. Number one, any hope of reopening the JFK case in a real way evaporated. All right. Number one. And number two, the Vietnam war raged on for seven more years. All right. And Bobby Kennedy, by 1968, uh, if there's one thing that he was sworn to do, he was going to end the Vietnam War. All right. So these connections were something we asked Bobby Kennedy Jr. about. You know, we and in fact, what happened was that when Oliver was done questioning him, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, why don't you ask him if there's any connection between the assassination of his father and the assassination of his uncle? That was probably the most powerful moment in all the interviews we did. Even Robert Richardson, who was a director of photography, even he commented on it after it was done. Because you could see in his eyes that the whole weight of what had happened to his family, you know, his father and his uncle, you know, that this had a tremendous gravity effect on him personally, that if this would not have happened, you know, America would have been a quite different place. And it's, it's, it's really a, you know, you think about it and it's a terrible weight to carry around with you. I'm almost sorry. I had Oliver ask him the question. All right. Uh, but that was really the most powerful moment of all the interviews that, that we did was when he, when we asked him that question. All right. And Bobby Kennedy, of course, you know, has come out and praised, uh, you know, Tucker, Tucker Carlson for saying that the murder of John F. Kennedy was a coup d'etat. And we're living in a fake reality ever since. All right. And Bobby Kennedy, he got on Twitter and he said, this is the most courageous moment by any journalist in the last 60 years. You know, somebody actually got on TV and said, the murder of my uncle was a coup d'etat and America has not been the same since. And he's correct, of course. (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, you know, Bobby Kennedy Jr. I don't know if you're aware of this. You probably are. By 1968, and I truly believe this, if you read some of the things that Bobby Kennedy was doing, some of the things that he was saying, I believe he was the most radical candidate to ever come close to winning a major party nomination in the 20th century. I, re- I really believe that after reading a lot about the things that he had done and what he was doing and the things he was saying, all right? Um And what happened, of course, you've probably talked about the RFK assassination, haven't you?
0: About who, About who?
1: About the RFK assassination. Oh,
0: absolutely, yeah. Uh, okay, alright. Well, including it, a, a long documentary that I did on the 7th, the 17th anniversary in 1985, the RFA number 9. Yes, uh, we've spoken about it extensively.
1: Yes, the the RFK assassination is more obviously a conspiracy than the JFK murder is. Alright, and what do I mean by that? Yeah, It might take you three or four minutes to explain how Oswald Could Not Have Killed JFK. It takes you about 40 seconds to convince somebody that Sirhan could not have killed Bobby Kennedy. And I've done this many, many times, and it works every time. You know, I just say, okay, you stand up. You're Bobby Kennedy. I'm Sirhan. You're and a and a half. I'm five, four and a half." Okay, my arm is extended parallel to the floor. All right, and I'm about this far away, a little bit to the right. So where do you think all the bullets are going to hit? And they would say, of course, the chest and shoulder area, maybe in the neck. I said, guess what? You're wrong. You know, every bullet that hits Bobby Kennedy comes in from behind at an upward angle. And at a very, very close range, the fatal shot being at point contact range, which means that the muzzle of the gun was probably right up against Kennedy's head or an inch away. All right. Because it has the you know, what tattooing is right. There was there was a a bullet tattoo in Kennedy's head, meaning that the gunpowder was so close to the target that it didn't have anywhere to go in the air and it imprinted itself right in to Kennedy's head. All right? So that's why Sirhan could not have killed Bobby Kennedy.
0: One of the things, uh, and this is not in, in the JFK uh, Revisited, but one of the things I found uh so compelling, and, and uh, I read this book, While the House Select Committee was having, it was concluding its public hearings in 1978, and that was the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy by William Turner and John Christian. And in addition to talking about what you just described, where the fatal shots came from, one of the things I found so enlightening and compelling were the evidentiary tributaries between Robert Kennedy's assassination and our other killings, i'm going to just go over these real quick because the time is a factor uh, the uh press conference that was that took place right after Robert Kennedy was killed, in which a uh, Cuban exile major Jose Antonio Duarte, was present that was arranged by american united a a, a split uh a split group of the John Birch Society and uh, Mrs H. And Steinbacher used a mailbox that was also used by the Edgar Eugene Bradley Defense Committee. <laughs> he was one of the, the witnesses' garrison saw, so and that conference was arranged by Ed Butler, the same guy who's was right, Carlos right. in Carlos uh, Springier in the WBSU interview. I think it was Hilbert. Had been, uh, taking hypno- hypnosis lessons and then, uh, he, in exchange for impartial payment, he gave a guy a revolver and some shells and said that uh, he knew things, big things, political things, uh, that an event was about to happen that would, would uh, precipitate race riots in the U.S. and that this uh, fellow might want the gun for protection. A few months later, Robert Ken- uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated, precipitating Race Alliance, uh, one of the enigmatic possible handlers of, uh, Sir Ron wrong was a guy named Jerry Owen. Uh, he had links to uh, mobsters like Jim Braden, whose name crops up in connection with the, uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy. And one of the strangest, one of his religious followers, uh, uh Jerry Owen called himself the Walking Bible. And one of his religious students was a woman named Gail Aiken, and she was the sister of Arthur Bremer, the guy who right. you shot Oswald there by knocking him out of uh sorry, sorry, Street, <laughs> knocking him out of the nineteen seventy two primary race and eliminating any threat he might have had to Richard Nixon's southern strategy. And so, but when I saw that, I said, Whoa, we're yes. not in Kansas anymore. Yes. Uh, you know, you see. know,
1: you know, you know what Thomas Pynchon said about that, the great novelist, the guy who wrote Gravity's Rainbow.
0: A brilliant guy, yes.
1: Yeah, he said, he said, paranoia is a state one is achieved when one realizes that everything is connected to everything else.
0: <laughs> well, it 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 certainly makes it very obvious that not only are these assassinations. Uh, not at all like what the official versions were. They were highly politically motivated, but that they are linked. They're part of the same program. Uh, forgive me for pontificating you, Jim. Uh, something that I wanted to, uh, talk about, and that was one of the many policy areas where JFK's policy was perverted by Lyndon Johnson. Tell us about the Alliance for Progress how JFK cast that, and then what it became of the LBJ.
1: The Alliance of Progress was a program that was um, decided upon between JFK and Arthur Schlesinger. Arthur Schlesinger, of course, was a illustrious historian who had studied Roosevelt's good neighbor policy okay, towards Latin America. All right. And he said although this was a nice gesture on Roosevelt's part, he didn't offer any kind of monetary award, okay, to try and get these people out of a state of poverty. Because the problem in South America is there's no middle class, all right? There's the abject poverty of the peasants, and there's the very high wealth of the upper classes, left over from the Spanish Empire, right? And so if you're going to do anything about this, I would say that that's the area that you should try and target. And so what happened was really something extraordinary. JFK put together a $20 billion package that did not come out of the Federal Reserve or the import-export bank. The reason he didn't do that, he wanted to take it right out of the Treasury, because he understood, and you probably know this too, that those kinds of loans have so many attachments to them that they're very hard to ever get out of, all right? And so what JFK was going to do was take the loans out of the treasury and either no interest or very low interest rates. So then he put together a conference, him and Schlesinger, at a place called, I think, Punta del Este in Uruguay, invited all of the representatives from all, even Che Guevara was there, okay, from Latin America, all right. And this was, I don't think this has ever happened before, and I don't think it's ever going to happen again. It was kind of like a bazaar, you know, a festival. And everybody was allowed to come in and make a proposal about how you wanted to use the money. And when you're talking about that kind of money, you're going to get a lot of proposals remember this is 20 billion back in 1961 it'd be about 200 billion today all right and so this was going to be used for things like schools hospitals loans to make new houses all right loans to pave roads etc and once this was all over, JFK realized something. All right. He came to two conclusions that 20 billion wasn't going to be enough. All right. And the second conclusion was that the people in high places, the aristocracy were going to be a real problem in getting this program through or right? he didn't realize how resistant they were to it. But they looked at it as a zero-sum game. All right? JFK didn't look at it as a zero-sum game. The money was coming from him. All right? And so this went on, of course, for about two years. And then LBJ came in. He made a guy named Thomas Mann, not the novelist, not the great German novelist, This was a diplomat that Johnson knew from Texas. He gave Thomas Mann almost the entire Latin America desk. To show you something about Thomas Mann, Thomas Mann was involved in trying to pin the assassination on Oswald after the assassination. So Thomas Mann essentially began the wipeout of the Alliance for Progress. And he had a meeting that was actually taped by somebody. And Mann said, words to the effect, that we're going to try and keep the administrations in power, in power, and a lot of this money is going to be reverted away from the social programs Back to the military. So over time, and and this is exactly the feeling LBJ had also. LBJ said, words to the effect. You can pour all the money in the world into Latin America. It'd be like throwing it down a garbage disposal. You know, only private investment is going to work. Okay. That's what he said. All right. And then the program was eventually zeroed out under Nixon. And the way that this was done, anybody could see what he was trying to do. He sent Nelson Rockefeller on a weeks-long journey through Latin America to make a report on what the Alliance for Progress was like. Now, any idiot, which Nixon was not, okay, would know that the Rockefellers had tremendous investments In Latin America. And in fact, the overthrow of Allende largely comes from those investments, just like the overthrow in Brazil in 1964 came from that. So Nixon knew what he was going to get from Nelson Rockefeller. And that's what he used to zero out the Alliance for Progress.
0: Uh, Jim, as we're speaking here, and we've got uh, a little over 10 minutes left, uh, against the background of the most right-wing government that Israel has ever had, uh, JFK revisited, talks about, uh, Kennedy's Middle East policies, and in particular, uh, his negotiations with a disposition toward uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and also uh, toward the Israeli government, and in particular with regard to the Gamona uh, nuclear reactor. I wonder if in our last 10 minutes here, you would uh, set that forth for us.
1: Okay, those were actually two pillars of Kennedy's Middle East policy. A trying to develop a relationship with Nasser, and no nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. Kennedy felt that Foster Dulles and Eisenhower had mismanaged the relationship with Egypt. He thought Nasser, who was a socialist and a secularist, was someone you could deal with to steer the region away from Islamic fundamentalism. Because, for one, Nasser had gone to war with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. They perceived him as being too much of a secularist. Alright. See, Nasser wore, you know, nice shirts, ties, Brooks Brothers suits. Okay. Spoke very well. Alright. And he did not in any way, uh, think That Islamic fundamentalism should be part of the Egyptian government. Kennedy saw this as an opening. He thought that Eisenhower and Foster Dulles had blown the relationship with Nasser. They wanted him to join the Baghdad Pact, which was one of their treaties that they had set up throughout the world, you know, like CETO. Okay. You know, in Southeast Asia. All right. And NATO in Europe. To bind the whole world with the United States. Well, Nasser didn't want to join. He said, look, if I join this thing, I'm going to be perceived as a lackey of the United States and your silent partner, England. Whereas England is the largest colonialist country in the world. All right. I'm, I have favor with my people because I'm independent. Well, Foster Dulles didn't like that. Okay. And, and so then he canceled the Aswan Dam, which forced, which forced Nasser to go to Russia. And Kennedy thought that was stupid. He said, why do you want to do something like that? This is the kind of guy you want on our side. All right. So he tried to build a relationship with Nasser and they exchanged, considering whoever you go to, they considered, uh, something like between 12 And 90 letters they exchanged talking about all kinds of topics. Nasser was a very intelligent guy. All right. And he really appreciated the fact that Kennedy wanted to develop a relationship with Egypt. All right. And they did. They did. It was a, it was a, it was a relationship, you know, that nobody ever had before. Okay. With with an Arab country like this, all right? And so Kennedy thought that Nasser would be the counterweight to Saudi Arabia. He really did not want to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia, although some of his diplomats forced him to, all right? But he wanted to use Nasser as a counterweight to the Islamic fundamentalism of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. Now, Damona, Damona was a secret atomic project that the Israelis had been developing for a number of years. It's called Dimona because that's the area where in the desert, I think the Negev Desert, that the location was. They always said that this was for peaceful purposes, but many people suspected it was not, that they were developing the bomb. And it turned out that that was true, that the Israelis were lying about what was going on at Dimona. And on top of that, if you read Roger Matson's book, Stealing the Atomic Bomb, you'll find out that they actually stole the enriched uranium from an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania. I believe it was around the Pittsburgh area. All right. And so between this giant deception, they were developing first helped out by the French, right? But what happened was the French, as the time went on, they figured out, wait a minute, this is not a peaceful use of nuclear devices, all right? And so they left. And so the Israelis had to do it by themselves, all right? And... They disguised it, and when Kennedy began to get reports, I believe this was in 1962, he began to get reports from France saying that, no, this is not peaceful usage. They're going to develop a bomb. All right, McGeorge Bundy collected them all, put them on Kennedy's desk. And Kennedy, if you read Matson's book, he says, look, you talk to these guys in the CIA that were around back then, every single one of them will tell you that the last president who was firmly against nuclear proliferation was JFK. For him, it was the Bible. There was not going to be any more nuclear proliferation on his watch. Right. So when he gets all this information, he writes a letter to David Ben-Gurion saying, contrary to what you're telling me, I have reason to suspect that you're actually building an atomic bomb. If you want to maintain the relationship we have, including the money we send you, then I'm going to demand biannual inspections of this Damona reactor. Ben-Gurion is outraged, all right? He starts screaming about Nasser, all right? If, if, if you keep on your relationship with Nasser, you're going to see what's going to happen. He's the new Hitler. Okay. And then what are you going to do when he rolls over Israel? You know, and so Kennedy is, did not believe any of that stuff. All right. And so he wrote the letter again saying the same thing. If you do not have biannual inspections, you're going to endanger the money we give you. Okay. And you know what happened? The day after that letter arrived, David Ben-Gurion resigned. He had been the longest lasting Israeli prime minister up to that time. All right. But now nobody nobody knows if that's the reason he resigned. A lot of people suspected it was. So then I think Eshkov was the successor after about a month. All right. Eshkov. And they were at the time of Kennedy's death, they were negotiating for the whole biannual inspection thing. Of course, this all changed under Johnson. I mean, every aspect of it changed. Johnson reduced the aid to Egypt. He raised the aid to Israel. Okay, he broke with Kennedy's ban on only sending Israel defensive weapons. He started sending them things like tanks, etc., and fighter jet planes. All right, in just one year, 1966, the eve of the 1967 war, all right? Johnson sent spent more aid to Israel in that one year than the United States had sent all the way from the beginning of the Israeli state, 1948 to 1965. This is how much that he changed Kennedy's foreign policy in that area. And uh we can see the result, I think.
0: Yeah, it is uh the, the entire subject of uh the Arab Israeli conflict or now it, it well morphed in the early seventies into Israeli Palestinian is complex and uh way beyond the scope of the discussion here. I know for for most of my professional life. I have been a supporter of Israel. That is no longer the case. Uh, over the last 10 years I've uh, become opposed to Israel because Israel is descending into fascism. Well, inevitably. So I, I don't even like talking about the subject because invariably I give it from one side and or the other, usually both. But uh, this fortunately is not a discussion of the scope of that conflict, but rather uh, Kennedy's approach to it and how that approach changed dramatically, as did so many other of his foreign policy initiatives uh, when he was assassinated. Um Jim, let's uh give give people information about we're almost out of time about uh Black Ops Radio, Kennedys and King dot com and about the book and documentaries
1: the website I supervise is KennedysandKing dot com. A lot of information about all four assassinations of the sixties there. The show that I'm on a seminar regularly is Black Ops Radio out of Vancouver, which you can find on the web The DVD, JFK Revisited, is, I think, a four-disc package, including a Blu-ray. It's doing very well. I think it's very well done. And most of all, the book that me and Oliver put together called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass has both screenplays for the long version and the short version, plus many excerpts from interviews that didn't get into the film. So that's a pretty good gift to buy for somebody.
0: And again, neither myself nor any of the stations on which these interviews will be aired gets any money from any of this. And again, it is a very powerful documentary. When I spoke of the uh, footage of the limousine post-assassination, seeing the pointed dent in the windshield rim and uh, the gore and the very obvious crack in the windshield uh, that has the impact of what James Joyce referred to in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man as, quote, the ineluctable modality of the visible, unquote.
1: <laughs> Good one.
0: This concludes for the record program number 1284, interview number 21 with Jim Diogamio about JFK Revisited. For, uh, this is being recorded on January 13th of the year 2023. For Jim Diogamio, this is Dave Emery saying,